the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Mark. To the degree that we demonstrate pride in our lives, we're being most like Satan. To the degree that we are most humble in our lives, we are being like Jesus. C.S. Lewis once said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. And so this is a very important topic to grasp because, again, as Augustine said, in many ways, pride is the pregnant mother of all sins. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Mark. Pride is the pregnant mother of all sins. As you listen to today's message from Pastor Gary, he teaches you the difference between pride and humility. Pride places oneself above God. Humility places oneself in submission to God. Pastor Gary teaches you that humility is not thinking less of yourself. However, it's thinking of yourself less. When you have pride, you're more like Satan. But if you're humble, you're more like Jesus. Each day, ask the Lord to direct you to being more like Him. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Mark, chapter 9, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Jesus takes three of his disciples up on a high mountain, and we decided, based on some of the evidence, that that was probably Mount Hermon, uh, though the traditional site is Mount Tabor, but uh, most believe that this is Mount Hermon. And uh, the reason I'm reminding you of this is because it plays into the next story here where we left off. Jesus takes three of his 12 disciples up Mount Hermon to be transfigured before them. They get a glimpse of his glory. He is transfigured in front of them, and the Bible says that he just shines with the glory of whiteness like uh, like nothing that has ever been bleached on earth. And so Peter, James, and John behold his spectacular shining glory, and uh, the other nine of the disciples, the other nine, are down at the base of the mountain, and they have their own scene going on. The Bible tells us that when Jesus descends the Mount of Transfiguration with the three, Peter, James, and John, that he had taken up with him, that he encounters this scene, and it's kind of a flurry of activity, and the scene is that there's this father who has brought his son, who is demon-possessed, to the disciples of Jesus so that they might cast the demon out. 
And uh, the Bible says that when Jesus arrives there, that the father of this demon-possessed boy says, you know, I've been asking your disciples to drive out this demon and to heal my son, and they've been trying, but they can't do it. And again, I just chuckle to think at what they were trying and how it wasn't successful. You know, were they mixing mud? Were they spitting on this kid? You know, they've seen Jesus do miracles and healing people, and were they trying to do what Jesus did? Well, If you were one of the nine and you've just had this moment of ministry that hasn't gone well at all because you've been trying to cast out this demon and and you can't, and there are three of your group, Peter, James, and John, who have been up with Jesus on a mountain, and now you're reunited, there might be just a wee bit of jealousy and envy and competition. Because the three are coming back like, hey, we just saw Jesus glow like he was in a nuclear reactor. It was awesome. And the other nine are like, oh, great. You know, we tried to cast out a demon. We couldn't even make that work. Okay, so that's the setting here. You have to understand that's the dynamics going on as we read now, moving into verse 33. So it says that they came to Capernaum. Now, just to, again, remind you just by way of a picture. So Capernaum is the, is the home base for Jesus' public ministry for the three and a half years of his earthly ministry. And this is an aerial view of modern day Capernaum. And it still, you know, has, uh, has yet to be entirely excavated. But, but, uh, they've uncovered, you know, much of the city of Capernaum. It's, it's a seaport little, town on just the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, a fishing village, if you will. And this is the place where, where Jesus did most of his miracles and, uh, and resided for most of his ministry. And so they're coming from Mount Hermon, from the region just beyond the Golan Heights, what we call the Golan Heights today. It's about a 30-mile walk. And so they're coming back from Mount Hermon down to the Sea of Galilee, here to Capernaum, it says. They came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house... That's kind of interesting, the house. It doesn't say what house, but it's, it seems to be an important house because it's the house. And it may, in fact, be Peter's house because we know that Peter lived there in Capernaum at this time. Uh, and it, it says that he asked them, Jesus asks them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Isn't this delicious? Now, again, that's why I gave you the background, because you got to imagine here that, that there's this kind of competitive, comparative thing going on, you know, between the nine and the three, no doubt. That's what's stirring all of this. You know, what did you see when you're up in the mountain? Well, we saw Jesus glow. Well, what were you doing? We tried to cast out demons, and, we, and you couldn't make it work? What's wrong with you, B? You couldn't make it work? You know, we were up with Jesus. It was spectacular. What's wrong with you? You could And oh, probably that's what's happening here. That's probably the dialogue, and that's the tenor of what's, of what's going on. And so Jesus, knowing this or overhearing it, whichever, says to them, what were you arguing about on the road? They keep quiet. Because like a couple little kids, you know, who had just now been snagged, you're not going to want to volunteer your own stupidity. And so they, they keep quiet because they've been arguing about, of all things, who is the greatest? Doesn't it give you hope when you read these guys' lives, you know? And here, and here they are just filled with pride. Now, Jesus, it says in verse uh, 35, sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. So he takes the posture of a rabbi. In those days, whenever a rabbi was about to teach, it was kind of the opposite of what we do. The rabbi would sit, the people would stand. That keeps you awake. There's no sleep in standing up. And so Jesus takes the posture of a rabbi and he sits. 
and he's going to give them a visual illustration to help point out their their real issue here, which is pride. The issue here is pride. I mean, you can't ask yourself and each other who's the greatest unless there's a problem of pride in the group. And this is an important topic for all of us to be reminded about because, as Augustine once said, pride is the pregnant mother of all sins. And if we don't get this, then we won't really deal with a lot of other sins because a lot of our sins really are rooted in the problem of pride. And that's what's going on here with the disciples. They want to know who's the greatest. They have a pride problem, as we all do. Now, some of you might say, no, you know, there's a list of sins that I struggle with, but pride's not one of them. Well, there it is right there. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, look, pride is something that we, that we can never... Pride is something we should always realize that we struggle with, and humility is something we should always strive for, but never take credit that we have. Because the moment that you take credit that you are now a humble person, the moment you, you've just said a proud thing. And, and so as, as we see this scene here, Jesus is going to confront them in a loving way, but in a very illustrative way, about the problem of pride. And so what does he do? In verse 36, he took a little child, and he had him stand among them. you got to picture this. Jesus is sitting, and he has a little child standing. And so this child is going to be the one that kind of towers over them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So some important things about pride. Now, this could be a Bible study all to itself, and we could go on for weeks about this, because there's a lot that the Bible has to say about pride. But I'm just going to leave you with three things tonight. Number one... God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's straight out of 1 Peter 5, 5. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So if we operate in a spirit of pride or arrogance, God will oppose us. And uh, Jesus even said in Luke 18, 14, that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, you know, there's often in the Bible what we would consider to be paradoxical terms that Jesus speaks in. You know, he talks about if you want, if you want to be exalted, you have to be, you have to humble yourself. Uh, he who is, um, humble will be exalted. He who is exalting himself will be humbled by God. You know, he says other things like if you want to re- receive, you have to give. He says if you want to be great, you have to become least. If you want to be First, you have to be last. And, and so there's always these wonderful paradoxes that you find sprinkled throughout the Bible, particularly in the Gospels, the things that Jesus says, that are counterintuitive to the way that we think. We think if you want to get more, you grab more. No, Jesus says if you want to receive, you have to have the mindset of being generous and giving. If you, if you want to, you know, be great, then greatness comes through leastness. These are very counterintuitive things, but they're biblical truths that we need to understand and grab a hold of. And Jesus says that as it relates to pride, if you're proud, you're going to be humbled. If you humble yourself, God will exalt you and he'll lift you up because he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Number two, Really what pride is, it's about my glory. Humility is about God's glory. Uh, When we are full of pride, it's all about ourselves. It's very self-centered. It's very selfish. You know, arrogance, pride is a a very selfish-oriented sin. Uh, Humility, however, is about God's glory. And then the third thing is, and this is important to realize, that pride makes us most like Satan. Humility makes us most like Jesus. 
When you look at the Bible and you understand the characteristic of Satan, you could say a lot of things. You could say evil, you could say wicked, you could say tempting. Uh, but but the, the root of Satan's problem has always been pride. And in the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 28, there is this description of uh, Satan. And uh, it says this, Ezekiel 28, verse 12, uh, that you were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, and then it lists all these precious stones. You have to envision this angelic creature who was created very beautifully and adorn his very created uh, uh, being. His, his form was decorated with precious gems. And the Bible describes it like this. So Lucifer, Satan, his, his name before he falls, uh, was a very beautiful angelic being. However, Ezekiel 28, 17 says, Your heart became proud on, account, on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor, so I threw you to the earth. God kicked him out of heaven. But it was pride that was the root of his rebellion because of his beauty, his heart was filled with pride, and he rebelled against God. You can also go home later and do an, an exhaustive study of Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14 also describes the fall of uh, Satan uh, from heaven when God cast him down to the earth. And Isaiah 14 uh, tells us that Satan had five desires, I will statements that Isaiah records for us that are rooted in pride. It says this in Isaiah 14, verse 13. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. And basically the five I will statements of Satan were, I want to rule over heaven. I want to rule over angels. I want to rule over the earth. I want to rule over people. And I want to be like God. That's basically the questions posed to us in Isaiah 14 from Satan rooted in pride. And that's what destroyed him. And so when you look at the characteristic of Satan in Scripture versus the characteristic of Jesus, in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And the Bible says in Philippians 2, describing the purpose and ministry and passion of Jesus, Philippians 2, 8 to 11, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So to the degree that we demonstrate pride in our lives, we're being most like Satan. To the degree that we are most humble in our lives, we are being like Jesus. C.S. Lewis once said that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. And so this is a very important topic to grasp, because again, as Augustine said, in many ways, pride is the pregnant mother of all sins. So back here in Mark's Gospel chapter 9, this is, this is the scene. There's an issue of pride going on here. Who's the greatest? Jesus uses this little child as like a humble visual illustration. You have to just be humble like this little child. And uh, whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Now, you think they learn? Verse 38, 
So they're in this little group. Jesus is taking this moment to teach them. In verse 38, it says, Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Does that sound a little proud? Yeah, it's like, you know, he's not in our club. He doesn't know our hand signals. He doesn't, you know, he's not one of us. He doesn't have our badges. He's not one of us. There's still this competition in the body of Christ today, unfortunately. You know, are you Methodist? Are you Baptist? Are you Presbyterian? Because you're not one of us. What are we here at Cornerstone? We're called non-denominational, right? We're Methobapteterian is basically what we are. Uh, and, and, and yet there's this competition in the body of Christ instead of cooperation. And we see it right here. John's wanting to know, should we stop somebody? They're not one of us. And Jesus says, don't stop him. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. And, continuing on, verse 42, and if anyone causes... One of these little ones who believe in me to sin, because the child's still standing there, so now he takes time to talk about his, his uh, complete love for children. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Now, by the way, some will read this verse and say it, it's kind of a metaphorical um, reference to young believers. You don't want to cause a young believer to stumble, to be led astray, because he talks about one of these little ones who believe in me. But I I take it a little more literally than that. I think he's talking specifically about his great love and protective concern for children. And so he says here it it would be better for somebody to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck than to lead a little child into sin to do anything to harm a child. Now, when I first uh, went to Israel, I took this picture uh, several years ago. This is actually in Capernaum, and it's a picture of a a millstone. The millstone is is the top stone, and then you have this pedestal, this base. And uh, just so you can get a perspective, the pedestal comes up about waist high on a man. This is a huge... This is actually something that was uncovered in Capernaum uh, back from the days of the time of Jesus, and it's actually made from the uh, basalt stone, which is the volcanic stone that is indigenous to that area there in Capernaum, the, the, the darker stone. And, uh, and then so that you get to picture how this whole thing works. I actually just found this picture on the Internet to give you an idea of, of the kind of way that the millstone would be used, where that center stone would be tipped up on its side, and then usually like a donkey would be harnessed to it and then would walk around in circles and, and the grain or the olives or whatever might be uh, in, in the millstone there to be crushed uh, would, would be walked around in a circle by a donkey, by some beast of burden until it was crushed or uh, until the uh, kernel was separated from the wheat from the chaff and that kind of a thing. So uh, this is probably more for olives than anything else this particular millstone, but you get the picture here that the millstone, you know, don't think of it like a, a little handheld millstone, like a size of a dinner plate. This millstone is, is like a couple hundred pounds. I mean, it's huge. And so when Jesus is saying, you know, it would be better for somebody to have one of those things tied around their neck than to lead a little child into sin, he's saying something very, very serious here. Very, very serious. His love and his concern is protection for children. Now, he uses this time to continue to go on to challenge about sin. Verse 43, he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. 
it is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell. Circle that word because he's going to use that word three times in this section. Better for uh, you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. Underline that, and I'll come back to that. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. There's the word again. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, before we break it down, let me just quickly say that uh, Jesus is not talking literally here. He's talking seriously. And how do we know this? Because, look, to cut off, let's say your, your right hand causes you to sin. To cut off your right hand does not mean you will no longer sin because you have a left hand. To cut off one of your arms doesn't mean you no longer sin because you still have a, the other arm. To cut off one of your foot doesn't mean that will stop you from sinning because you still have another foot. In other words, look, you can have, you know, a guy could have both arms cut off and both legs cut off and be lying there with no arms or legs and his name would be Matt. <laughs> That's really bad. Just think about it. But anyway, and he's just lying there with no arms and no legs. But listen, he can still sin. A person could still sin. Why? Because you could still sin in your heart. You could still th- sin in your thoughts. So if Jesus was meaning this literally, if this was the remedy for sin, then all you'd have to do is cut off an arm and a leg and, you know, and, and just be completely maimed and have no appendages and, and then somehow, now what? You, you will then go to heaven for that? No, no, no. What he's saying here is something very serious. Don't go home and start gouging out your eyes and start cutting off your hands. Jesus is not speaking literally here. He is speaking seriously because sin is a serious thing. And there is a real hell if you don't repent of sin. And he uses that word three times in this section. It is the word Gehenna. It is an Aramaic word that is derived from the Hebrew words Barhinom. Barhinom, sorry, not Barham, Gehenom. Gehenom means the Valley of Hinnom. And it was during the time of King Solomon that that valley right there in Jerusalem, there's three main valleys that cut through the city of Jerusalem. And one of them is the Valley of Hinnom. And is today called the Valley of the Children. Because when you go to Jerusalem, there is this plaque to remind everybody in Israel the tragic thing that happened in the Valley of Hinnom during the days of King Solomon. When King Solomon was led astray by his pagan wives... Uh, he engaged in idolatry and led the, the nation of Israel into a time of idolatry, which involved, in the worship of Molech, the sacrifice of little children. King Solomon, who was, at a time, the wisest man who ever lived on the earth, and he prayed for wisdom, and God gave him wisdom, uh, sunk to the, the, a place of such mental depravity that, that he actually was a part of leading the nation of Israel into the worship of children until their blood flowed in the valley of Hinnom. And that's why today it is called the Valley of the Children, to always remember the terrible tragedy that happened right there uh, in one of the valleys of Jerusalem uh, where children were slaughtered. Now, in Jesus' day, which obviously followed the time of Solomon by about a thousand years, the Valley of Hinnom became the kind of the town dump because at the end of Hinnom, was this place where all of the, the, the garbage and the refuse and the sewage would run down to this lower part of the city of Jerusalem, and it would be there that, that it would be constantly burning. 
Just a big garbage, just the town dump, would be constantly burning to burn all the garbage. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary has been walking us through the book of Mark. More than the other gospel books, Mark seems to have been written in a way that communicates the fast-paced course of Jesus' ministry, helping us realize it was only for a short time. While the book of Matthew focused on proving Jesus as king, Mark focused on Jesus as a servant. Jesus repeatedly displayed his servant's heart through the various miracles he performed, caring for others above himself. Jesus' example of a servant is something that we should be humbled by and should follow in his footsteps by serving others. We'd like to take a step in that direction by serving you in some way. Can we be praying for you? We'd love to know what's on our listeners' hearts. If you're willing to share with us, our email address is prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. We'd love to meet you, too. Come join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg. We're meeting in person as well as online, and you can find all the information you need on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, you'll find additional teachings from this series in Mark and other series. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in to hear Pastor Gary on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know